Hey everybody, welcome back to the Pop Anime Comics Lounge. Every once in a while on this podcast, I get to interview a legend. And this week's guest is one of those legends. It's Tom DeFalco. Now, Tom has written Archie comics. He's written Scooby-Doo comics. He's written several Marvel titles, including a stint on Spider-Man. As well as with Marvel, he was the editor-in-chief, really dictating the direction that Marvel was going and ultimately influencing the product that now is affecting Marvel, along with several other creators. So without further ado, let's dive right into this interview before I bore you to death. So when were you first introduced to comics? You know, as a young child... I became aware of comic strips in the newspaper and became enamored by them. I used to cut the comic strips out of the newspapers and scotch taped them down to loose leaf, made my own books, and I followed Terry and the Pirates and Milton Kniff's Steve Canyon and Phantom and Mandrake were two of my favorites, Prince Valiant, and I got hooked on Walt Kelly's Pogo. And somewhere along the line, I'm not exactly sure how old I was, maybe first grade, second grade, might have been first grade or, or before that. I was over at a relative's house, and my cousin Johnny, who was much older at the time, saw me sitting around. He says, hey, I got something for you. He gave me a detective comic or a Batman comic book. I don't remember what issue it was, whether it was Batman or detective, but I remember seeing the comic book and thinking, well, this is like what I do, but it's in color. And was so excited about it. Batman, of course, a very scary figure in those days and scared the heck out of me. But I discovered comic books. And the next time I went to the candy store, I looked around and found other comic books. And from then on, I was just hooked. So what were some of the titles of comic books that you were reading? Growing up. As a kid, I was reading pretty much anything. I really liked Jimmy Olsen, Superboy, Spooky, Hot Stuff, the Archie comics, and the occasional Batman. The Superman-Batman team-ups, because Superman made Batman a little less scary. I remember when the Justice League came out, I was just fascinated by all of those guys. Green Lantern, The Flash, The Fly. I loved The Fly. I was just a comic book freak. And why do you feel that you were gravitated towards comic books? There was just something about the medium that enticed me. Now, I was a big reader. I discovered Ed Grice Burroughs around second grade. Pretty well read all the Ed Grice Burroughs novels and all those kinds of books, science fiction books, fantasy books. But there was just something about comics that just kept drawing me back to it. And I think it's the combination of words and pictures that intrigued me then and intrigues me now. And before going into college, did you do any comic writing or any writing in general? Before I went to college, I joined the high school newspaper, wrote articles in the high school literary magazines and did some poems and short stories, you know, the usual things that you do in high school. Would write skits for whatever presentation we were doing. Kind of at an early age, I kind of realized that my destiny was to be some kind of writer. When I went to college, my plan was I was going to become a school teacher and become a weekend writer, which is a lot different from what I actually became, which was a writer who had to work on most weekends. Now, speaking about college, when you went to college, you were involved in a few local newspapers, as well as writing a few comic strips. How did you get involved in these projects? I think my first freelance gig, there was a giveaway newspaper. And a friend of mine said, yeah, they're looking for writers there. Do you have any interest? And I said, yeah, sure. And went over there and talked to him. And I think I wrote a couple of reviews on some comics. 
And then the more I did for them, the more they gave me other assignments. And then eventually there was a local newspaper there. I feel terrible now because I can't remember the name of it. Actually, they had two newspapers. One was a morning one and one was an afternoon one, but they were both published out of the same offices. And I eventually started writing for those guys. And then eventually there was the college PR department. I went there and started to do PR articles. And as for the comic strip, all colleges have their college newspapers. And at one point I approached the editor and said, hey, how would you like a weekly comic strip for it? They said yes. And I got together with an artist and we started to produce a weekly comic strip. Now, after you graduated college, you became an editorial assistant for Archie Comics. How did you discover and apply for this job? After I graduated college, I thought I needed a job. Around that time, the economy was terrible. Nobody was hiring. I went to a couple magazines that I had sold some short stories to, and they said, oh, well, writers stay home and write. They don't have jobs. But I had it in my head that I needed to have some sort of regular paycheck. And then I thought, you love comic books. Why not send your resumes out to the comic book companies, which was probably a very stupid thing. So I went to Marvel and went to DC and never heard back from him. And I happened to pick up an Archie comic, and it was a very funny Archie comic, so I sent one to Archie Comics. They gave me a call and invited me into the office. I guess they liked what they saw, and they offered me a job. And what were your roles in this job? My main role was to be a proofreader which is kind of ironic because I think these days I'm probably the world's worst proofreader. The first thing they gave me to do was a pile of mail for Dear Betty and Veronica. And they had me open the mail to see if any of the kids had accidentally sent in money for comic subscriptions. So I basically got this big tub of mail, went through it all, and then started proofreading. And I got to handle original art, proofread the material. And then while I was there, they eventually taught me how to do production work, paste-ups, make small lettering corrections. They taught me how to color covers, general production work. As time went on, I started writing one-page gags for them. And then from there, I went to five-page stories. And then eventually, I moved into the big time. Two-part stories, which in those days were 11 pages. A six-page story and a five-page story that all appeared in one issue. 11-page stories. Those were big things. And while you were at Archie, you played a big part in establishing Archie Comics Digest, that series. How did that come about? I'd like to talk about my brilliance as a man with his finger on the pulse of comics. But the truth is... I think it was Gold Key that started coming out with Digest Comics. They were reprinting Walt Disney Comics and a number of other comics. I saw the Digest and I said, wow, this is a perfect format for Archie Comics. So one day the publisher, John Goldwater, came in and I said to him, Mr. Goldwater, I really think we should do this. And he looked at these books and he said, why? I said, because it's perfect for us. And he said to me, Tommy, you just don't understand the marketplace. And he walked out. And two or three days later, he comes in with the digest books that I had handed him. Says, I've got a great idea. We should start publishing these books. Put 160 pages in them. And Victor Gorelick, who's editor, production manager through that time, said, it was your idea, kid. It's now your problem. It's up to you to get this stuff out. I basically became the editor of all the Archie Digest books, and they proved to be very successful. And from here in Archie, you began to write Archie in their flagship comic. How did that opportunity come about? I used to think that back in the day, the top writer for Archie Comics was Frank Doyle, who I think was a genius, and I don't think anybody has ever gotten near Frank's level of work. This man knew the characters and just could write a story that would have you hysterical or break your heart. And Archie had a number of great artists, Harry Lucy, Dan DiCarlo, Sam Schwartz, Joe Edwards, just so many great artists. And whenever one of my stories went to Harry, it ended up in the Archie book. 
Whenever one of my stories went to Sam Schwartz, it ended up in the Jughead book. But it's not like when they bought stories, they would say, oh, this is for Archie, this is for Jughead. Now, outside of Archie Comics, you briefly wrote for DC Comics, where you were involved with the Superman family titles and the final issue of Starfire. How did these opportunities come about? In the 70s, there was this organization called ACBA, the Academy of Comic Book Arts and Science, something like that. And I met Paul Levitz who is a very personable guy, really good guy, still a friend after all these years. Paul was working with Joe Orlando, an editor at DC. Joe was doing custom comics. And at one point, they were doing a book about teaching teenagers how to eat properly. And because I was doing Archie comics, primarily teenagers, Paul thought of me to be one of the guys working on this big project. It ended up to be a book about 160 pages, something like that. And I did a bunch of stories in it. So I started working with Joe Orlando. And then at one point, Joe said, I'm thinking of doing a children's line at DC. Do you have any ideas? And I proposed a couple of ideas for Joe. And then they had an idea for Super Juniors, which were baby versions of the Justice League members. And they asked me to do that. I think it was a 60-page story, something like that. It was going to be a Christmas book, one of those giant super specials. It eventually came out as a digest book, which was kind of interesting. Anyway, so I was doing that sort of humor stuff for Joe. And at one point, Joe said to me, hey, have you ever thought about doing straight stuff? And I said, what do you mean, like the superheroes? And Joe said, you ever think about that? And I said, well, I really enjoy that kind of material, but it really looks hard, Joe. I don't know if I'm good enough to do that stuff. And Joe laughed at me and he said, you got to think of it as a business person. They want you to do a plot. You can do plots, Tom. They want you to do characterization. You're very good with characterization. And here's the kicker. It doesn't have to be funny. Basically, you're doing half the work for the same amount of pay. And I thought, doesn't have to be funny. I said, that is at least half the work. So maybe I should take a shot at that. So I heard from Denny O'Neill, who asked me to do a story for a love comic. Still remember the title after all these years. I won't kiss that evil way. And then Denny asked me to do Jimmy Olsen, which I did. And Joe called me and he said, we're doing this comic book, Claw the Unconquered. Here's all the issues. Tell me what you would do to fix this book. And he gave me all the issues and I went home and I read them all. And I came back and I said, I'm sorry, this book is beautifully written. It's terrific. It was written by Dave Michelini. I said, I have no idea how to fix this. I think it's terrific. And he goes, yeah, that's my problem too. It's not selling, but I think it's really good too. But Dave was moving on. So I wrote two issues of Claw the Unconquered and Starfire. I worked on a lot of projects for DC where they would assign me a book that was having a problem with sales. I'd write two issues and either one or none would come out. So they were hiring me to fix things, but I never got a chance to actually fix things. And being a fan of superheroes, what was it like to write them? It was pretty exciting. I got to work on Jimmy Olsen. And Jimmy also was one of those characters that I had grown up with. So I just loved the idea. Then at some point, they asked me to do Lois Lane, too. There was just something about that strip that just intrigued me. And I loved the character. I made a real reporter and just had a lot of fun with that Lois Lane stuff. Eventually, they gave me Superboy, too. It was terrific. So I was having a great time with all of the DC stuff. Now, after your run with DC... You came over to Marvel. How did you come over to Marvel? Around that time, at one point, Paul Levitz told me that they had a weekly poker game. Poker is something I've always wanted to learn how to play well. I started to show up at the weekly poker game, and I met a bunch of the guys, Marv Wolfman, Len Wein, Jim Shooter, a whole bunch of guys would show up at that poker game. 
And at one point, Shooter said to me, you know, I've been reading the stuff you're doing for DC. You should come over and talk to us one of these days. So I said, yeah, sure. And eventually went over there. And Jim Shooter asked me to do a tryout story. At this stage of the game, I do not remember if it was a five-page story or a seven-page story featuring the vision. So I wrote a plot. I guess they liked it because they asked me to do some other things. And the more I did, the more they asked me to do. Now, one of your earlier works with Marvel was The Dazzler. How did that come about? Marvel had made a deal with Casablanca Records and I think a movie production company. And the plan was to come out with a character who would appear on stage tour the country, would appear in comic books and appear either on television or in the movies. They had the visual for the character and the name for the character, Dazzler. And they called me in and I was also working with a young woman by the name of Roberta McKenzie. So they called the two of us in and they said, this is what the Dazzler looks like. We just have to come up with a story about her and and explain how her powers work and stuff. And I said to her, what is her power? They said, well, she has the ability to make people tell the truth. And I remember sitting there saying, she has the ability to make people tell the truth. That's not a very exciting power for comic books. And they said, well, what would you suggest? And I said, you know, you're calling her the Dazzler. It should have something to do with light, where she does something with light that dazzles people. Okay, why don't you run with that idea? So Give us a backstory, essentially a series Bible. Tell us who the character is, who her supporting cast is, why she does what she does, and just basically do a series Bible. So Roberta, her nickname was Dickie. Roberta McKenzie and I went off and started working on the Bible. At one point or another, and I don't remember her reasons, but Roberta dropped out of the project. So I finished up the Bible. I turned it in. They liked it. They assigned John Romita Jr. to do the artwork. And we did the first story, which was supposed to be one of those Marvel super specials, magazine size comic that ran 30, 38 pages but it was supposed to be a full-color magazine. But before we were done, Marvel decided they didn't want to do those kind of magazines anymore. Casablanca was having second thoughts. The movie people made a deal with John Derrick to do the movie, and it was going to star Bo Derrick. They prepared a basic treatment for the movie, and John Derrick and Bo Derrick were all set to do the movie, but they had to finish up their current project, which was a movie called Tarzan. The Tarzan movie came out. It did not do well. And that was the end of Bo Derek and John Derek and their connection to the Dazzler. The movie company dropped out and Casablanca Records eventually dropped out. And then Marvel just had this character. They had the comic book in the drawer and I think it sat in the drawer for maybe two years. And then they eventually pulled it out at one point, looked at it and said, you know what, this is a pretty good comic book. Maybe we should make it a monthly series. We made a number of changes to the first two issues just to flush it out a little bit. The rest is history. And while you're working at Marvel, you also worked at Hasbro with G.I. Joe, as well as being part of the creative team that brought the Transformers to America. How did this happen? I was working at Marvel. It originally happened because Hasbro had an advertising agency called Griffin Bacall. And Hasbro decided that they were going to bring back G.I. Joe as action figures. They spoke to their advertising agency. And the advertising agency said, listen, we have a unique idea. In those days, there were all sorts of regulations on how you could advertise a toy on television. But there were no regulations on how you could advertise a comic book because no one had ever advertised comic books on television. They said we should advertise a comic 
comic book, and we should get Marvel Comics to do the comic book. So Hasbro and Griffin Book Hall came to us and said, we'd like you to produce a comic book based on G.I. Joe, and we'll advertise that comic book. They made a big comprehensive deal with the company and blah, blah, blah. And Larry Hama did most of the development work. Also part of the development team was Archie Goodwin and myself, Jim Shooter. And Larry and I did a lot of work with Hasbro. Again, I want to give all of the credit to Larry Hama because he was the real genius there. And we produced the G.I. Joe comic book. Hasbro was very happy with it. G.I. Joe eventually became a big success as a toy, a big success as a comic book. So it made sense that when they decided to do Transformers, they got in touch with us again. That's how I got involved with Transformers. Now, after Transformers, you got involved with writing Spider-Man. How did that opportunity come about? When I first worked for Marvel, I was working as a freelance writer. And then eventually they offered me a contract to become one of their contracted writers. At a certain point, Jim Shooter came to me and said he was reorganizing the editorial department. And he knew I had worked in the editorial department at Archie. And he asked me if I could be interested in becoming an editor at Marvel. And I said to him, Jim, I haven't worked a full-time job in years. Even at Archie, my last bunch of years, I was only working there two or three days a week. Jim said to me, well, listen, I only really need you for maybe six months. Could you come on staff for six months? And I said, yeah, six months. Sure. Why not? I owe Jim. Jim treated me very well and was a good friend. So I became an editor and a number of titles they gave me were all the Spider-Man titles. So I was the editor of the Spider-Man titles for a long while. And I had a great team of writers, Roger Stern on Amazing, J. Mark DeMattis on Team Up and Bill Mantlo on Spectacular. Got to edit the books. The sales increased. Spider-Man was doing terrific. Eventually, the company decided to punish me and promoted me to be executive editor. And when I became executive editor, I got a bunch more duties and wasn't able to edit monthly comic books anymore. And they gave the titles to Danny Fingeroth to edit. So Danny's editing the Spider-Man titles. And one day he comes up to me and he says to me, Roger Stern is going to be leaving Spider-Man. He has an opportunity to write the Avengers and he'd rather write the Avengers than Spider-Man. So I'm going to need a new writer for Amazing Spider-Man. And I said to Danny, wow, I wish you the best of luck because only an idiot would follow Roger Stern on Amazing Spider-Man because Roger is so good. And he says, well, I'm just the idiot in mind. And part of my job was to keep track of our freelancers. So I grabbed the list of writers and I was looking at the list and rattling off names to Danny of people who I thought could do a very good Spider-Man. And I looked up and he had this goofy smile on his face. And he says, oh, I already know who I want to write the book. And I said to him, well, if you know who you want to write the book, why are you wasting my time? Because you're the idiot I have in mind to write the book. And my first reaction was, no, nah, I don't think I can do the dialogue. And Danny convinced me to come on as a temporary writer on Amazing Spider-Man to see if I could do it. He said, you don't have to worry. The first couple of issues, Roger's already plotted. So you won't even have to come up with stories. You just have to do the dialogue. And he said, by the way, John Romita Jr. is leaving to go do the X-Men for about six months. You'll be working with Ron Friends. And Ron Friends and I started to work together. And here it is 30 some odd years later. And we're still working together. Now, on your run with Spider-Man, you introduced Spider-Man's black suit. How did that come about? The plan was to introduce Spider-Man's black suit in Secret Wars. In a number of the comic books, 
everybody leaves to go to secret wars and then they come back and there are differences. And one of the differences was Spider-Man had a new costume. A couple of years earlier, somebody had suggested Spider-Man gets a new costume, which was primarily black and Shooter bought the story, but the story itself just never came together. So he never published it. So Shooter had always wanted to do the story where Spider-Man gets a new costume. He said, we're going to do it in Secret Wars and it's going to happen in this issue. And I remember looking in with the black costume, it had a number of new powers and new abilities. So I said to Jim, how does all that stuff work? And he turned to me and said, you're the writer, come up with something. So I eventually came up with the idea that it was an alien symbiote. And that's how the black suit came about. And after your run on Spider-Man, you became the editor-in-chief for Marvel Comics. How did this position become available to you? There was close to a year in between there. Jim Shooter had been editor-in-chief for a number of years. At a certain point, the management decided they were going to make a change. They decided to let Shooter go and told me that they were going to put me in charge, which was a surprise to me because I was Shooter's second-in-command. I always assumed that when they made a change, they would get rid of Shooter and me. They came to me and said, no, we want you to do it. I wasn't sure I could do it, but I ended up doing it. And while you were editor-in-chief, you worked on Thor as well as you created the New Warriors. How did you balance between your role as a chief editor and writing? I have always considered myself a freelancer who masquerades as a staff person. I have been writing most of my life. Even though I was on staff, I always had to keep writing. Writing is my sanctuary. It's what I'm compelled to do. So I would just get up early in the morning before I went to work and I would write. After I got home at night, usually around 9, 9.30, I'd write for an hour and then I'd write on the weekends. That was my life. Whenever the company would send me on a trip, I'd sit in the plane and write. I just put in a lot of time and a lot of effort. And now after your reign as editor-in-chief, you returned to working on The Amazing Spider-Man, Spectacular Spider-Man, as well as creating the character Spider-Girl. How'd you get re-immersed into the Spider-Universe? While I was still editor-in-chief, at one point, Danny Fingeroth, who was editing the Spider-Man titles, came to me and said, we have this new young writer who we think is going to really develop, but we want to teach him how to do plots. So they asked me if I could basically plot issues for him. And I would do the plots and he would do the dialogue. The artist that I would be working with the plots was Sal Buscema. And Sal was a very good and close friend. And Sal said to me, come on, give me something to draw. Because it was Sal and Danny and Spider-Man, I thought, why not? So I started to do the plots. And the writer was Todd DeZago. And he started doing this wonderful dialogue and developed very quickly as a writer. And then they gave Todd another book, another Spider-Man title to write. And I said to Danny, well, who's going to write this one? And he said, well, you already did the plot, so you might as well write it. So Danny basically conned me into doing Spider-Man again. Danny often cons me into doing things. To this day, he is still conning me. One of these days, I'll wise up. Now, after your work in the Spider-Universe and Marvel, you returned to Archie for a four-part series. How did it feel to return home? to where you started. To be honest, it was great to go back. All the years I was away, when I was working as an editor at Marvel, I always kept in touch with the Archie guys. Victor Gorelick, my first boss, my first editor, and I have remained good friends. At one point, we were talking, and for the last, I'm going to say, 15 years, I've been a freelancer, and I've worked for Marvel, I've worked for DC, I've worked for a whole bunch of companies. And at one point, Victor said, well, why don't you do something for us again? 
And I said, yeah, sure. What do you want me to do? And I came in and I met with him and I met with John Goldwater, who's the son of the John Goldwater that I had first dealt with. They came to me and said, well, we'd like to bring back the man from Riverdale. And we started talking and things ballooned from there. I worked on that, worked on a bunch of individual Archie stories and still do. These days, I'm still occasionally writing for Marvel, occasionally working for Archie. And if they call me, I'll occasionally work for DC. I'm an equal opportunity writer. If the assignment is interesting or scares me, I'm more than happy to work for anybody. And then do you have any advice for anybody who wants to get into the comic world? First bit of advice I would give them is become a writer first. Do not go up to be a comic book writer. Be a writer. Somebody who can write anything, whether it's a prose short story, a prose novel, a screenplay, a teleplay publicity article, a nonfiction book. Put a number of different arrows in your quiver. Be a writer who does comic books, among other things. These days, I don't do all that many comic books, but I've got plenty of other things to keep me busy. It is made for a very interesting life. I think people who have this one burning comic book story in them, guys, don't become wedded to any one burning story. You should be open-minded and open to all the possibilities around you because you want to have an interesting existence. So that's my advice. And then finally, do you have anything you'd like to promote? Facebook, Twitter, website, convention appearances? I've got so many books in print, so many things that I've written over the years. I'm just a lucky and thankful guy and not really looking to promote anything. I'm just happy that other people are promoting things for me. As always, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the podcast, and we can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio, and anywhere else where you listen to your podcasts. And while you wait for next week's episode, you can definitely check us out at popanimecomics.com for articles relating to anime, comics, and pop culture, as well as you could give us a follow on Twitter at popanimecomics, like our Facebook page, Pop Anime Comics. And until next week, everybody, have a wonderful week.